If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Debtors' prisons were a major feature of English and Welsh society in the Georgian era. But how did the idea of locking up debtors to make them pay their creditors actually work? Cambridge University's Dr Alexander Wakelam, the author of Credit and Debt in the 18th Century, an Economic History of Debtors' Prisons, tells David Musgrove why and how the system operated. He began by explaining what exactly debtors' prisons were. So the debtors' prison is a really long-standing part of um, English and Welsh uh, society, and to a lesser extent Scottish, that is kind of instituted gradually in the Middle Ages. So the first laws which are brought in, which kind of allow courts to imprison people for failing to pay defaults to uh, city authorities come in in the late 13th century. And then they don't really have much of an impact until the mid 14th century, when they bring in a mechanism which lets ordinary citizens send each other to prison for failing to pay debts. And that's not necessarily, a, well, it's usually not the result of a trial. It's a um, an arrest 
to respond to a trial, uh, which is a fancy technical way of saying that you can pretty much lock up anybody um, who owes you anything over a small defined amount of money. They really spread uh, in the 17th century and in the 18th century, where they are a regular feature of everyday life. And they function pretty much in that position until 1869, when the ability to send somebody to prison without trial is uh, finally removed. And then they enter a long, slow decline. There is some evidence that suggests there were people still in debtors' prisons in the early 1920s, um, but there aren't good solid records that prove it one way or the other. Um, though technically they're never fully abolished until 1970 um, when local government reforms wash away a whole sweep of outdated <laughs> statutes and practices which had never technically been removed from the law books. So there are, they, they are essentially there are seven centuries of, of use of debtors' prisons in this country. And so they're not a minor feature of medieval society that disappears over time instead they are a they're one of our longest standing institutions in a way scotland has a different legal system and they, there are debtors prisons in scotland but they function in distinct enough a way that daniel defoe uh who is an author and uh social commentator in the early 18th century in describing the difference between england and wales and scotland says that the reason that they don't have uh, as good an economy in Scotland is because you can't send people to prison for debts. You can, but his understanding of how their system functions essentially means that it's not a viable system for uh, raising revenue in the way that he sees it as it is in London in the 1720s. Ireland has a similar system to England and Wales, but they have a much lower rate of uh, imprisonment outside of places like Dublin, simply because of the, the nature of their economy is far less urban. So we're going to focus mostly on the, on the 18th century in mm-hmm. this conversation. So debtors' prisons in the 18th century, roughly how many of them were there in, in England and Wales in, during the century? Yeah, I, there were hundreds of them. Um, I mean, they prisons close over the 18th century and new prisons open, but they aren't like a distant feature of the you know something that happens in a dark corner of town. People would walk past them every day. There probably is probably few other institutions in England and Wales that are as experienced on such a regular basis. Maybe with the exception of the church. So they were on bridges. They were in gates, as in gates in walls, where you've got room to keep people rather than just other gates. Old castles that are pretty much defunct after the English Civil War. Large numbers of those are changed into prisons, most of which are holding debtors. Um, so they're kind of imposing features of the landscape. So you, if, even if you're walking out in the countryside, you might be able to see a debtor's prison in the distance. Uh, they're in marketplaces. They're pretty much everywhere. London alone has something like 20 prisons um, operating at different periods but you would be hard-pressed to find any town in England that doesn't at least have some kind of room that is where debtors are locked up. Okay and um, and some of the most famous ones I suppose would be in London I'm thinking of yeah. the Marshalsea that's is that the most famous example that you would you would cite? Probably um, the Marshalsea is uh, uh, probably the one that we know best now 
because of its connection with Dickens. But at the time, there's also prisons in London uh, known as the Fleet, uh, on Fleet Street, and the King's Bench, which is not far from where the Marshalsea is on the, the South Bank, which are kind of the famous prisons of the day. But there are other, lots and lots of other prisons that are a kind of common feature of people's lives and everybody would understand what you're referring to at the time that we've now forgotten about. And were they unpleasant places to be? Certainly. I mean, they weren't... Part of our problem with our perception of debtors' prisons is that a lot of the historical work that's been done on them has been guided by writers who were interested in reforming debtors' prisons, or they were written by people who were in debtors' prisons, who had a active interest in describing them in as unpleasant terms as possible. Um, So some debtors' prisons were extremely unpleasant, particularly in regional areas. There is a famous prison reformer, John Howard, who visits every prison he can in the country and writes a book in which he chronicles um, the conditions in all of them. And I think it's in Gloucester Castle. He describes how all of the, the... the, the floor is broken, um, how there's a big dung heap that's kept in the room with the prisoners from um, agriculture. Um, and this is a clearly very unpleasant place. But in a lot of the urban prisons can be relatively comfortable. York Debtors Prison, which is the last um, standing, still standing debtors prison in the country, it's now the York Castle Museum, is a glorious Baroque building that the city spends a huge amount of money building in the early 18th century. And the prison has ordinary rooms for poorer inhabitants, which are rather unpleasant. And then they have suite rooms for wealthier prisoners, which even have uh, a place for servants of prisoners to stay. So it's a real variety of conditions. That's not to say that being in a debtor's prison was always a nice place to be, but there were certainly variations in quality. Um, In fact, those famous prisons I mentioned are famous for a reason. Um, In part, it's because a lot of the people who are in those prisons in London are relatively wealthy. In fact, there's a guidebook that's put out in the 1790s called The Debtors and Creditors Assistant. This is like a cheap little book. It costs a shilling. And it's the kind of thing that if you're worried about going to prison, you buy a copy and it gives you all the information you need to know about the legal processes of debt imprisonment. But it also makes recommendations about which prison you might want to go to. Uh, And they particularly recommend the King's Bench um, because the rooms on the third floor are light and airy and have an excellent view of the Surrey and Kent Hills. So they make sure to recommend that you go there and get a room on the third floor. Was the experience of of the debtor's prison um, very different uh, between sexes? Did men and women have very different experiences? Broadly, I'd say no. Uh, There are fewer women in debtor's prison. That's broadly to do with law about who is able to own property. So married women cannot own property in England in the 18th century. It is owned by their husband. And debt counts as property. So theoretically, married women are protected from debtors' prisons. But there are roughly between, you know, at the end of the 18th century, about 5% of prisoners are women. But at the start, it's upwards of 30% of prisoners are women, certainly in London. And they tend to, men and women tend to be mixed in prisons. Some prisons have specific wards for women. Um, Even um, the Borough Compter, 
which is near Borough Market, had a specific exercise yard just for the women. And some prisons have specific alehouses just for the women. But these people, broadly men and women, are mixing together in common areas in prisons. Some men will be bringing wives and children with them into debtors' prisons. So there's, it's, it's not a solely male environment. In fact, there's at least one instance of people getting married in debtors' prisons. Mary Wells, she actually meets somebody in debtors' prison and gets married within the prison. And there's a a huge feast in the yard of the fleet. Um, So these are places in which men and women are having relatively similar experiences, as long as they're commercial people. These are broadly middle-class people who are in debtors' prisons rather than the poor. Uh, And and there are always a few aristocrats bumping around. Uh, In fact, in terms of that shared experience... Um, Samuel Foote, who was a comedian um, of the 18th century, um, while he was training to be a lawyer, uh, well, not training very hard, he was mostly out drinking and buying clothing, was sent to debtors' prison. And shortly after he got there, he had a letter from his mother back in Cornwall and clearly thought, oh, here we go. Mother's found out I'm in prison and so I can, I can, uh, I'll, she'll pay my debts and I can be out again in a couple of days. And he opened the letter to find that his mother was also in debtors' prison in Cornwall and asked him to send uh, money to bail her out. Uh, and so he had to write back simply, Dear mother, so am I. <laughs> so debtors' prisons, do they solely contain debtors? You, if you were mm. in a debtors' prison, would you have been housed next to a convicted murderer? So prisons hold different types of people. Some are purely debtors' prisons, some are purely prisons for felons. But it's worth noting that in the 18th century, um, the justice system was only starting to really use imprisonment as a punishment. Most people, um, if they're found guilty of a crime, are punished by whipping, um, they are sentenced to death or they're transported so the majority of people who have committed a crime who are in a prison of any kind are usually awaiting trial or awaiting punishment so actually the kind of people who spend extended periods of time in prison are debtors so you wouldn't necessarily be housed right next door to a a person who's been convicted of murder but you might likely be held in the same institution but they would be kept separately usually in fact there are complaints occasionally from prisoners in periods of overcrowding that um debtors are being housed too close to felons but if there was an example say of a murderer being kept in the room of a debtor there would have been a city inquiry probably to deal with how on earth this could have happened because it's worth our kind of association with prisons is that people who are in them have been found to have done wrong but debtors weren't being punished for being in debt they were placed in prison to compel them to make their payments um so most people would never have seen the felons who were in prison if that makes sense yeah. Okay. So, so that last point that gets to the nub of the conversation that we that we need to have about why people are in debtors' prison. And let let's just go back a second because you said some interesting things there about wealthy people having suites in in debtors' prison and servants and things like that. Why would a wealthy person be in a debtors' prison? Yeah. I mean, the part of the problem with understanding why debtors' prisons worked so effectively requires you to understand that like the 18th century had a very different approach to what to credit 
in the way that we think of it. Um, so today, when we talk about credit, we generally think about um, financial institutions, uh, and we think about banks, and we think about loans with defined terms. Credit in the 18th century, th- there are loans, there are developing banking institutions, but the majority of credit refers to purchases that people make on an everyday basis. So there's the currency at this time is still based on silver and gold, and there's just simply not enough current silver and gold currency to meet the demands either of the speed of commerce, which is increasing significantly from the late 17th century, or the needs of inflation. Also, not all money is very trustworthy. There's a lot of coin clipping going on and counterfeiting. So potentially, the physical money in your pocket might not necessarily be worth what it claims to be. So most people buy their goods on an informal system of credit. uh, And this is used for almost everything. So whether you're going to the pub at the end of the day to buy a pint, you probably get that on credit. Whether you're going to buy a new watch, you probably get that on credit. The watchmaker probably bought their supplies on credit, and they may even have paid their the wages to the people who made did the fiddly work for them on credit as well. And in that system of credit, it's not necessarily about how much money you actually have. So credit in the 18th century is intensely tied up with contemporary understandings of reputation. So if you're a good member of your community, um, if you help out widows, if you go to church every week, um, if you are known to be honest, or if you have a particular social rank, then you have a better credit rating than someone who might have a lot of cash but is publicly drunk um, and doesn't take care of their family in public. So it's a system that's very much in operation from the late 16th into the 19th century uh, and develops out of of small, tight-knit rural communities. But in the 18th century, when you've got urban environments, a lot of that credit is moving at a much higher pace um, and it's a lot more subjective. But that still doesn't mean that you necessarily have a contract when you're buying things. Most agreements are on oath. They're um, an oral agreement. Usually just somebody agrees to pay the sum when demanded. So you don't necessarily stake anything when you're buying, um, nor do you necessarily um, make a specific agreement about when you're going to pay it and under what terms. So usually people are in debtors' prisons not because they can't pay, but because their creditor believes they can pay and they haven't yet paid. Um, so you, the reason you might have somebody who theoretically is quite wealthy in debtors' prisons is because they might potentially not have a lot of cash on hand. Um, their wealth might be stored up in the things that they own, um, in the um, money that they've lent to other people themselves. Their money is tied up in things that are not easily transferred to creditors. Also, people if you don't have a specific arrangement of uh, you must pay by September, people have different expectations about when they actually might want to make payments. Uh, you might need that money for something else at a different rate that you think is more important than paying your watchmaker. 
So people people don't people who might be wealthy might not necessarily have a lot of cash on hand with which they can pay debts that they are that they owe. And so when a creditor comes calling, they might be wealthy but unable to actually make that demand. And so those people might end up in debtors prison not necessarily because they're impoverished, but simply because they either lack cash or they didn't really feel like they needed to pay that creditor. If you've got friends you owe money to or a business you want to invest in, you might more likely to put your money towards that than a watchmaker who you can probably blag off for a few more weeks. Okay, so that's interesting. There's a couple of things there. So there's a kind of a differential understanding of of what credit meant, but also in modern parlance, there's people who have liquidity issues. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's it's most people in the 18th century are profoundly illiquid. Um, not just because there's not enough cash flowing around, but because of this ubiquity of credit. If you're selling goods on credit, you need to buy on credit. So there's not this kind of hard line in a way that we might think of today between creditors and debtors. Most people are both creditors and debtors at the same time. So this is fascinating, isn't it? Because um, as you said, it, it kind of it doesn't really make sense then to put somebody in prison if they owe you some money, because how are they going to pay you? So the the, the main thrust of your of your argument in your book, as I understand it, is that actually these these prisons were effective in allowing people to to get the credit that they were owed. How does that work? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is the kind of main finding of my research was that. Uh, I was looking at the records produced by prisons themselves. Uh, So they're the registers which detail all the people coming in, how much they owe, and when they left. And when I started working on this, I kind of had that same sort of assumption that people who go to debtors' prisons clearly must be um, the bottom of the barrel. They're clearly examples of, of failed business people, or the very poor. And what I started to notice was how quickly lots of people were leaving the prison and how many of them were being released by their creditors apparently after having paid their debts. Um, So we're talking about particularly some of the smaller prisons in central London, upwards of 80% of people are paying their debts and um, at least satisfying their creditors in some way. And 90% leave the prison within a year, which is very different to our kind of Dickensian assumption of people being locked up Um, So one of the reasons that that is, is this kind of thing, as I was saying, is that creditors generally believe that debtors have the ability to pay if pressed. If you have a debtor who is completely impoverished, that everything's gone wrong in their life, it's not really worth your time imprisoning that person. Um, And you'd probably just kind of write off that debt as unrecoverable. So the, the groups of people who are in debtors' prisons are generally believed to be those who could pay if pressure is applied to them. And as I've said, most people are generally illiquid. And so one of the responses to debt imprisonment is to go, okay, I need to raise this amount of money. How am I going to do that as quickly as possible? And that includes using money you might have put to other purposes, selling goods and calling in favours from friends, and actually also imprisoning your own debtors you know you've most people who are in debtors prison are business people they're traders they're innkeepers and they have a long list of people who owe them money as well who can now be proceeded against who they might have given more time uh, at their leisure in a way it's worth thinking of the debtors prison as a tool of contract enforcement 
rather than uh, a place of punishment. If you've got this system where people don't have written contracts specifying um, when they're going to when they should repay their debts, the debtors' prison is a tool for the creditor to go. Okay, now it's time to pay and give the debtor themselves a real incentive to find that money. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Prisons usually have pubs in them. Uh, sometimes these are run by prisoners. Um, there's a, in fact, at the Marshalsea in the 1720s, um, there's a coffee house slash pub that's run by a prisoner, and it seems that, that she makes a huge amount of money from other prisoners uh, because they're, she's the only source of of um, prepared hot meals, uh, alcohol, and coffee. So clearly, it would it could have been unpleasant to be in Dessa's prison, and but also um, commercially very inconvenient. Um, were people able to carry on their business transactions whilst they were in prison? They were. So there's a scale of that at the Fleet and the King's Bench, which are these two famous prisons. There's actually a system whereby, if you want to, you can pay an extra fee to the keeper of the prison to live outside the prison walls. Um, within a defined area. So there are a number of people who, if you've got cash on hand, but not necessarily the cash to meet your your debts, where you might go out back into the world and trade again. I mean, you can't very publicly trade on credit, so you do have to trade on cash, which is hard. So you're looking at a select group of people there. But even if you can't afford that, or you go to one of the the rest of the country's prisons where that's not allowed... People are able to trade from within prison. There's a great example from... Um, there's a parliamentary inquiry in 1792 into the how the debtors' prisons are functioning. Um, and they take evidence from prisoners. And there's a weaver at the King's Bench who talks about how he has a contract from a supplier to weave cloth from within the prison. And his main problem is that the cell he is currently in, the ceiling is too low. So he wants to be moved to a different cell with a higher ceiling so he can move his loom. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Into the prison and start weaving cloth. So if you've got enough space, you can do some quite substantial work. There are people who, in this same inquiry, who are reported to be working in even some of the smaller central London prisons as cabinet makers, as tailors. Um, Cabinet making obviously requires quite a large amount of room. But if you're a tailor, you probably don't require quite as much room. What you require is access to raw materials um, and access to your tools. Um, So this is another thing of that people who are being put in debtors' prisons aren't necessarily panicking. Um, Some people will sell all their tools in an attempt to raise cash. But if you think I can probably keep working in here, you might not sell everything you have and just kind of carry on your business from within the prison. Prisons are always full of lawyers who are able to continue working from inside prison. In a way, they're a kind of access to cheap goods for the local part of the community. If you're a lower middle class person who probably can't afford to travel into Westminster to buy a brand new tailored uh, outfit, maybe pop into the local debtors prison and see if there is somebody who's willing to do it on the cheap. Or if you need cheap legal advice, pop into a debtors prison, there'll definitely be a lawyer there who can help you out. As long as, as, long as you don't need representation in court, you can, you'll be perfectly fine to help you. So what is the process, if you're a creditor, of of getting somebody into debtor's prison? And then also, if you're a debtor, what is the process of getting out? Is it simply you just have to hand over the cash and you're out? Sure. So the the majority of people who end up in debtor's prison are placed there by creditors who secure a specific writ in which you have to go to a justice of the peace. You swear to the existence of the debt. You might provide evidence, but it's not usually a requirement. And then you pay the court's costs, usually of about a shilling. After that, a writ is issued and handed to a bailiff. And then the bailiff goes out hunting for you. Bailiffs can seize anyone in the streets, except on Sundays. Uh, On Sundays, you're safe. And bailiffs can't enter people's homes. But you can be out anywhere and be captured by a bailiff. There's, um, There's an actress and comedian called Mary Wells, who in her autobiography describes a time she sent to prison while she's at the theatre. She's gone to see her friend's play, which ironically was called How to Grow Rich. I don't know if that was she was looking for inspiration. Uh, but she was sat in her box and a man came and sat next to her and quietly informed her that she was under arrest, but he was happy to let her watch the rest of the play first. So that's how most people end up. It's a really easy system. There's no trial. You can sue people for debts in court, 
but that involves a trial it's expensive and a lengthy proceeding whereas you can have people arrested very quickly and at minimal expense which is one of the reasons why it's so popular with creditors across the period this is this is very much a user-driven system we kind of think of debt as debt imprisonment as something which happens to people when it's really we should think of it as something which is done to people by other people there are multiple ways out uh, the most obvious and regular of which is to pay and again creditors are usually well with exceptions creditors can be quite reasonable they understand that people aren't necessarily going to pay immediately though some people do quite a lot of people who are arrested never actually make it to debtors prisons there's something like in 1792 they estimate that about 9000 writs are issued a year in the in london but only about a third of those people even make it to debtors prison because when people find out that they're being pursued they try and pay up as quickly as possible but creditors will take payment on installments creditors are regularly visiting their debtors in prison to check on how things are going to collect a weekly payment from them until the full sum is agreed they also might negotiate a new deal so they might come out with a written contract of you have to do this by then or you default uh, a piece of land say or people swap goods you know, if you if you have a smallish debt, you might just be able to hand over a watch uh, or maybe some other well-worthy goods that are probably worth around the amount you owe. And creditors do seem happy to accept that on occasion. Other people, though, are just simply working steadily to raise the money to pay their way. There are a minority of people who leave the prison in other ways. Uh, about 5% of prisoners die in prison. It's not as many as you might imagine. Debtors' prisons are potentially quite unhealthy places, given the the rate of disease that's spreading around 18th century cities. Um, But 5% is relatively low. And most of the people are dying after several years of imprisonment rather than several weeks of imprisonment. A more regular way in which people are leaving the prison is they're granted an amnesty by Parliament. So around 10 to 15% of prisoners actually can't pay that the creditor was wrong and that they're never going to raise the amount of money possible. These are people who they're not spending three months in prison, they're spending two years in prison. And so to try and deal with that, every now and again, Parliament passes an amnesty in which people who have been in the prison for a certain amount of time can apply to have all of their debts cleared in return for turning over every single last bit of their remaining property to their creditors. So it's kind of like bankruptcy today, though bankruptcy in the 18th century is is very limited. Only specific people can go bankrupt and you have to have very specific debts to go bankrupt. So this is a kind of popular form of bankruptcy, but it requires two years of debt imprisonment. And so that's sometimes been seen by as the main way in which people leave prisons, but actually it's, it's a minority back up to stop people from getting stuck in debtors prisons forever okay so the, the question i should have asked you earlier actually is um who who funds the debtors prison who pays for the incarceration of the debtors this is one of the things that prison reformers at the time and subsequent um scholarship that has looked at debtors prisons has found uh most ridiculous which is that debt imprisonment is predominantly paid for by the debtors themselves uh, so most debtors prisons are private institutions. They're theoretically they're owned by the, the the local town, but the right to run them 
is rented out to different private individuals who then have to make a profit from the prison itself. If the creditors had to pay for it, then it wouldn't make sense to to run it because then uh, creditors wouldn't be uh, incentivized to use the system. And if the local towns had to pay for them, uh, then that would require a significant potential tax increase to generate revenue. So in a way, it makes most sense in terms of the utility of the system to have debtors themselves pay for it. And that's done in a series of ways. So each prison has a different set of fees, but generally people have to pay a fee when they're committed and they have to pay a fee when they leave. Usually the commitment fee might not be paid at commitment uh, because people might not have cash on hand, but that'll be added to your eventual bill. So there are instances of people who would be technically released by their creditors, but still in prison because they owe money to the prison itself. But there are other ways in which the keepers raise money. So there, uh, in each prison, there will be rooms that are free. And they're usually called the common side or the common ward. Um, and these are the most unpleasant parts of debtors' prisons. They're usually just a big room full of bunk beds or hammocks or just plain boards with straw on them on which people sleep um, mixed together. But if you can afford to pay a weekly rent, then you can have a private room to yourself or shared with another individual. And these rents are probably, by my estimation, they're at or below the market rate outside of the prison. So they're not necessarily extortionate in compared to what you might pay outside the prison. But they are if you're if you're thinking about people who are simply there because they theoretically don't have enough money to pay their way. Also, prisons usually have pubs in them. Uh, sometimes these are run by prisoners. Um, there's a, in fact, at the Marshalsea in the 1720s, um, there's a coffee house slash pub that's run by a prisoner. And it seems that, that she makes a huge amount of money from other prisoners uh, because they're, she's the only source of, of um prepared hot meals, uh, alcohol and coffee. But in most prisons, they're run by the prison keeper or the prison keeper's wife or one of the prison officials' wives. And again, these can be quite cheap places to drink. There is evidence that people come in to use the pubs in debtors' prisons because they're cheaper than pubs outside the debtors' prisons. But ultimately, all of that money goes to the keepers and helps provide them with a decent living. These are are business people themselves, and debtors' prisons are a business in the 18th century. It seems cruel, but it was a very accepted part of society. And they're not all making huge profits. The, The standard assumption in the 18th century is that people who run prisons making vast amounts of money. And that's true if you're running one of the big famous prisons. But sometimes people who are running debtors' prisons are running them at a loss or they're making a meagre profit. And for some people, these are a way essentially of gaining civic status. Um, that, yeah, you still want to make money out of it and get a return on your investment. But the having been a very successful butcher, say, you might then spend your later years running a debtor's prison to gain some kind of civic status that otherwise wouldn't be available to you. So this is so interesting because on the face of it, as we started the conversation, the whole system sounds kind of crazy and counterintuitive. But when you, as, as you've explained it and how you've sort of outlined how it fits in with the with the economic culture of the 18th century, it, it does kind of make sense and you can see why, why it's in place. But I suppose um, the most famous uh, examples of of the death prisons, as we talked about at the top of the conversation, is is in Dickens's interpretation. Dickens was a nineteenth century writer, so um, 
I assume, and you said that, that they began to die out during the 19th century. That, I assume, is because the economic structure starts to change and banking um, uh, systems become more complicated and uh, able to facilitate better credit and better liquidity. Yeah, that's one of the broad reasons why that that changes. There's also other economic changes in that more people are starting to work for cash wages rather than working uh, as independent contractors. If you think about, say you're a, um, a, a, a spinner living in Lancashire in the 18th century, you're working at home, you're being given cotton at a consistent rate to spin into wool or to yarn, but then you're probably buying that on credit and then selling it and you may have to sell on credit. If you're moving into a factory system, potentially, or a workshop where you're working a defined wage, you might earn less or relatively the same amount. But one of the key things there is you're not becoming indebted. So that kind of shift to a wage economy does take people out of that credit market in a way. But there are also changes made to the institutions themselves from the legislative point of view, um, in which the society starts to feel like, oh, we should put some limits on what's going on with debtors' prisons. Because they're, they're quite unusual in that they're not created in the 18th century. As I said, they're a kind of medieval hangover that have been reinterpreted by 18th century commercial society to serve a certain purpose. And so it's there's no real solid restrictions around exactly how they function. And once people start to say, okay, we should place a limit on here, people who owe under this amount of money can only be held for this long. Once people start trying to improve the system, they damage it and they make it less productive for creditors. Um, so the fleet and the marshalsea close long before debt imprisonment is abolished um, simply because the financial reason for their existence is no longer viable. But that doesn't mean that people are necessarily all pro the abolition of the debtors' prison. Uh, certainly in the late 18th century, there's a, when the real clamour for reform begins, debt imprisonment use is at its height. Potentially in the 1790s, you're looking at one in every 25 men in London is facing the possibility of being sent to debtors' prison. And about 1,500 people are definitely arriving in debtors' prisons every year. So it's a significant time for their use, just in London, that is, not across the whole country. And some reformers are kind of judged in the ACC. There's a particular London city councillor called uh, Mr. Dornford, who is particularly anti-debtors prison, but he also has all these other funny views, like that they should abolish the death penalty, or that everyone should have the right to vote. So he's kind of, he's a bit out there by late 18th century standards. And his attempts to reform specific prisons go down very badly. And people write into the newspaper complaining that his behaviour would ruin commerce or would, you know, set murderers free upon the city. So it's not necessarily... Some of the much older commentary on debtors' prisons has kind of assumed that they were a big medieval institution. And in the 18th century, everyone became enlightened and no longer... And capitalist and no longer wanted to use debtors' prisons. And so they faded away. It's, it's much more a gradual process that sort of unpicks their reason to exist rather than a rather than a huge we must get rid of these movement 
Absolutely fascinating. Now, last last point then. So, as you said, we don't have debtors' prisons anymore. I wonder, though, are there any sort of lingering legacies of the of this system, either in our current financial structure or indeed in our in our prison structure? Do they have any uh, any legacies? I mean, it's difficult to say that whether they have legacies or not. In some ways, I mean, some of those institutions are used for a very long time. Lancaster Castle only stopped being a prison in the last 10, 15 years or so. And that was a very prominent debtor's prison. In terms of their of their legacy in the world, I tend to think of them less as a specific institution, but more as like an idea. And I think that idea that what I'm trying to suggest is that if somebody owes you money, you can coerce them into paying it to you is very powerful. And you do see that in other places. So while there are very few countries that breach the UN statement on banning imprisonment for debt. Um, I think Palestine is the only place where they they still have a debtor's prison system. In America, after the financial crisis of 2008, there have been worrying reports, particularly in the early 2010s, of courts sending people who owed minor fines, usually for traffic offences like speeding or having broken headlights, to prison for failing to pay and finding that they could raise significant amounts of revenue from that as panicked relatives or friends rush to courts to bail out their relatives. And that's essentially the same system. It's different in from the 18th century English system, which are private individuals prosecuting one another, to the state using the threat of permanent incarceration to extract money potentially illegally from citizens but it is essentially they work for the same reason i do i do, i do want to say though like you know part of my work is about taking debtors prisons from a kind of depersonalized view trying to understand how they worked i'm not trying to say that they were therefore a really great idea um and the kind of key example for me for that is somebody like Charles Dickens, through whom much of our opinion about debtors' prisons in the modern world has been shaped. You know, if you've read Little Dorrit, you you know the story of, of old William Dorrit, who spends 20 years in the prison. And a lot of people have said that this figure looks a lot like Charles Dickens's father himself. Uh, and when Charles Dickens's father went to the Marshalsea, when Charles was only 12 years old, it completely changed his life. And it, to some extent, it's like the defining moment in the young Charles Dickens's life. Uh, but Charles Dickens's father only spent three months in the Marshalsea. It's not like he was confined there until he died. He was out relatively quickly. But that short experience stayed with Charles Dickens forever. And so even though I'm saying that, you know, people may not have spent long periods of time in debtors' prisons, they may not have died in debtors' prisons, they may not have suffered physical harm, it undoubtedly had significant uh, emotional impact on them. Uh, it wrecked people's finances because it, if you hadn't paid before and you're suddenly being made to sell up all of your goods to make sure you can pay again, you're not necessarily going to be in a financially healthy position. So my work is about understanding why creditors chose to use the system, not necessarily saying, oh, let's bring them back. They weren't great. That was Dr. Alexander Wakelum. His book, Credit and Debt in 18th Century England, An Economic History of Debtors' Prisons, is out now in paperback, published by Routledge. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. 
This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.